Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. Welcome to a special episode of Inside the Vatican with America Media. I'm your host, Colleen Deli, and this week I am joined by our producer, Maggie Van Dorn. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Maggie. So this week we are doing a special deep dive edition of Inside the Vatican on the so-called communion wars. These are the disagreements over whether pro-choice politicians can receive communion in good conscience. And I think it's important for us to talk about why we're doing this. You know, Mm -hmm. this is an issue that there's been a lot of development in over the last year, a lot of back and forth between the bishops and the Vatican, and now we've been getting comments from President Biden. But Maggie, you've been following this story really closely, and you did some deeper reporting on this to kind of trace the origins of these communion disputes and how they've led to the divisions that we see in the U.S. Catholic Church today. So want to tell me about who you spoke with for the story? Yeah, so I spoke with Don Clemmer, who served in the USCCB, the United States Bishops Conference Communication Department, for eight years. And I also got to talk to our old friend, Father Tom Reese. He should be a familiar name and voice to many of our listeners. He is a Jesuit, a journalist, a senior analyst at Religion News Service, and a former editor-in-chief at America. He's written extensively about the U.S. church, so I knew we needed to talk to him. And if you've been following this story, you know that America has been there every step of the way. Catholic bishops are meeting virtually this week, where they're discussing a number of issues, but none more talked about than a proposed statement on the Eucharist. We'll provide some context and analysis about what's actually happening, the deeper issues at play, and how we got I think in many ways we're, we're already in another round of communion wars. And the story has raised a lot of questions, perhaps more questions than answers. But for me, it left me wondering a lot about the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and canon law and the relationship between the bishops and the leading political figures of our day. Mm -hmm. But it also left me thinking about what all this says about the bishops and the rest of us, like Catholics. All right. Well, Maggie, I am excited to dig into this story with you. This is not the first time politicians and bishops have locked horns. In the early 2000s, John Kerry garnered a lot of Episcopal attention for his stance on stem cell research and abortion. Stem cell research has the promise of finding cures for illness, from Parkinson's to Alzheimer's to diabetes. John Kerry strongly supports stem cell research. Embryonic stem cells are harvested from live human embryos which are then destroyed in the process. There are some bishops in this country who have said that in their diocese, they do not want Senator Kerry to even receive communion. So when did these battles over communion and political ideologies start? Actually, the communion wars go all the way back to 2003. My name is Thomas Reese, Father Thomas Reese. I'm senior analyst at Religion News Service. 
Father Reese actually cites the story of Representative David Obie as an early marker of this conflict. When Representative David Obie received a letter from his local bishop, who at that time was Raymond Burke, who was the Bishop of La Crosse, and he questioned Representative Obie, who was a Democrat, because he was pro-choice in terms of abortion. So this communion war has been going on for quite a while. Colleen, Archbishop Raymond Burke was in your backyard of St. Louis, right? Yeah. So Archbishop Burke had kind of clashed with John Kerry in 2003, but that carried into the 2004 election. And in January 2004, Burke came down to St. Louis, which was my childhood diocese. I was in like fourth grade when this all was going down. So I don't know Mm -hmm. how much specific recollection I have of this, but I do remember that it was something that a lot of people were talking about in the archdiocese. I think that my priest, who was very much not in agreement with Burke on this, was preaching about it on Sundays. And so, you know, my parents kind of had to explain to me what was going on. But when we talk about the bishops and the Catholic Church, what exactly do we mean? I think it's pretty fairly common knowledge that a priest runs a parish, a bishop heads a diocese. And Colleen, you just reported on this on Inside the Vatican uh, a couple weeks ago. But how many dioceses are in the United States? 177. And so these 177 plus dioceses, their bishops collectively make up the USCCB, which Mm -hmm. is short for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And there are conferences all around the world. They're called Episcopal conferences because Episcopos means bishop. And really, they're meant to serve as a consultative body. Right, right. So they kind of, they meet together twice a year, they write pastoral letters, but they really, they don't tell each other what to do, which is going to be a key factor in this story. And one of the things that they're best known for is uh, that they have this effort called Faithful Citizenship, which is kind of their voter guide. Now, as a religious organization, they can't explicitly endorse certain candidates, but they can kind of outline Catholic stances on the issues. Uh, And so this is where you get the bishops presenting abortion as their preeminent priority, which, you know, understandably can give the impression that a Catholic, according to the bishops, should really only vote for pro-life politicians. Okay, so the bishops are offering moral guidance. They weigh in on politics or rather provide resources to help Catholics with the formation of our own conscience, especially around the elections. But I wanted to know just how long the bishops have been writing letters to presidents. So I reached out to Don Clemmer. I'm a writer and editor, and from 2008 to 2016, I served in the communications department of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops based in Washington, D.C. Don says that the gathering of bishops began in a time not unlike our own. There was a pandemic and World War I. In the wake of the influenza pandemic and with World War I, we have the church really stretching out into humanitarian efforts. So this organization of the bishops took a lot of different forms over the years. It started as the National Catholic War Council, and then it rebranded to the National Catholic Welfare Council. And then later on, you have this other bishops organization that's formed. And eventually, in 2001, the two combined to make the USCCB that we have today. That was starting there in 1917, the primordial 
U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and an effort of the hierarchy of the church in this country to provide what we now have the language to call a, you know, a prophetic response to the signs of the times. The bishop's first document was called Bishop's Program for Social Reconstruction, and it was first penned in 1919. It was an effort to apply Catholic social teaching to the crises of the day. And they uh, incorporated teachings from Rerum Novarum, such as the need for senior pensions and unemployment insurance and things that we really take for granted now. Rerum Novarum was the first big papal encyclical on social issues. It was drafted by Pope Leo XIII in 1891, so right in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And it really put the church firmly on the side of labor unions and labor protections. So then, a few decades later, in the 1920s and 30s, you had the U.S. bishops looking to address a related, if a little different, set of issues that were burning in their time. This was their blueprint for what solidarity could look like integrated at the level of federal policy. One of the uh, real architects of all of this was a priest, Monsignor John Ryan, who was a staff member at the NCWC, and uh, his maybe signature service to the bishops in terms of this document being received in any way was his outreach to a newly elected president, Franklin Roosevelt, in the wake of the Great Depression to say, here's what it could look like. Because, I mean, Roosevelt was a pragmatic guy and was open to things. So how do we get from this organization advocating labor rights to these debates about denying communion? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Colleen. How long do you have? I think that the most important takeaway I got from Don Clemmer is that this didn't happen overnight and it was never a neat and tidy process. So with each new administration, there were many debates over the years and not just between bishops and politicians. Often the conference was internally divided. So it took a real commitment to bridge building, hmm. mutual listening, or what Pope Francis today calls synodality, and, you know, the challenge of striving for consensus. Right. And when the church says consensus, it doesn't mean a simple majority or even a super majority we might talk about in politics. It means an almost unanimous agreement. So this process is pretty important to understanding how the church works, and also any conclusions that may or may not be reached. And mm. we'll see later that the net result is informed by church laws about processes and what bishops can and cannot do as a body. But first, let's quickly recap this past year. We know Biden was elected president in early November. I think it was November 7th or election week, as it was called. And at the same time as that, the U.S. bishops were holding their semi-annual meeting. And remember, it took a really long time to count the votes. Anyway, at this November meeting, they're discussing this question of the Eucharist, and a bunch of the bishops mention Biden by name. And after that meeting, they decide to put together a working group. And then in January, on Inauguration Day, we get two letters. One comes from the president of the USCCB, Archbishop Gomez, and the other comes from the Vatican. And these two letters take very different approaches to newly elected President Biden. 
Right, Archbishop Gomez's letter is really long and it kind of has this long run up that says, you know, the US bishops take no political sides and that working with Biden will be really interesting because he's Catholic and that it'll be good to work with somebody who shares a deep understanding of Catholicism with them. But then he gets to the but. And he spends the bulk of the letter, like five paragraphs, outlining all the areas in which Biden's platform is at odds with the bishops. He writes, quote, I must point out that our new president has pledged to pursue certain policies that would advance moral evils and threaten human life and dignity, most seriously in the areas of abortion, contraception, marriage, and gender. So really just putting it all out there. Right. And then if you compare that letter to the very congratulatory message Pope Francis sent President Biden when he took office, that reads, I extend cordial good wishes and the assurance of my prayers that Almighty God will grant you wisdom and strength in the exercise of your high office. The Pope writes this and then he goes on to add, I pray that your decisions will be guided by a concern for building a society marked by authentic justice and freedom together with unfailing respect for the rights and dignity of every person, especially the poor, the vulnerable, and those who have no voice. And in March, Archbishop Gomez sends a letter to the Vatican saying, hey, our working group has decided to write a letter on the Eucharist. And the Vatican says, okay, you can do that, but it needs to have some guardrails. And one of those is that it shouldn't focus exclusively on politicians. So why did the bishops say they wanted to draft this document on the Eucharist? Well, ostensibly, they wanted to address the fact that so many of us took a long pause in, uh, or at least had experienced heavy change in what our relationship with Eucharist looked like for at least a good portion of the pandemic. And anybody who's spent time in the church knows that there is a persistent dread over the sense of people who walk away and never come back. And the pandemic has created an incredible uh, <laughs> window of opportunity for anyone you might deem a flight risk in the church. In addition to the pandemic, a Pew study came out this past summer in 2021 that said that 69% of Catholics might not have an entirely orthodox understanding of the Eucharist. But I know that this survey has been tossed around rather uncritically and has rightfully received criticism for that. So what's so problematic about this study, Colleen? Well, how you phrase questions in a scientific survey has a big impact on how people respond. So the Pew survey asked if the bread and wine, quote, actually becomes Jesus in, in the Eucharist. Uh, it also asked a question about whether the bread and wine were symbols of Jesus. And Mark Gray, who is a researcher at CARA, the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate at Georgetown University, he's a person who surveys Catholics as his full-time job. Mm -hmm. He pointed out that surveys that use language that's more familiar to Catholics, so saying like, Jesus is, quote, really present instead of actually becomes, that's going to be language that's more familiar to Catholics. And questions that make clear that the symbol answer is in contrast to that. So saying something like bread and wine are only symbols or are symbols, but Jesus is not really present. Once you ask questions like that, using that more familiar language, using language that suggests that the symbol is opposed to the actually present answer, the percentage reporting of belief in Catholic teaching gets much higher. Actually, he looked at two surveys that had been done around the same time and found that 
those surveys had nearly double the people from what oh, Pew wow. found, saying that they actually believed in transubstantiation. But despite all of this, the survey still set off an alarm for some bishops. Here's Bishop Robert Barron talking about the need for better catechesis around the Eucharist. If on this central matter of our belief and practice, there's this much deep misunderstanding, something has gone substantially wrong. So the Pew study, combined with the pandemic's impact on Catholic participation, motivated the bishops to start a process of Eucharistic revival throughout the U.S. Church. But nothing exists in a vacuum. And so a lot of people saw the whole process of Eucharistic revival as a critique of Biden and pro-choice politicians. I asked Don if there was any other way to look at it. The political context strips some of the plausible deniability out of this. That political context and timing also stood out to Father Reese. You know, when someone takes office, you tend to send kind of congratulatory letters not a letter with a list of all the problems you have with that. So, for example, if you compare what the Vatican said to Joe Biden when he became president, it was very welcoming, was looking forward to working with you, that sort of thing. Whereas Archbishop Gomez's letter was a bit confrontational. The timing of it was as surprising as the content. And it's not just about timing. It's a matter of emphasis as well. All we hear is the bishops talking about abortion, right? Well, I would defend the American bishops because they do talk about immigration. They do talk against capital punishment. They're very concerned about the poor. And, and these are topics that they talk about in their press releases and in their testimony before Congress and other places like that. The question is, how much emphasis do they give to each topic? You know, for example, we, uh, the bishops have a number of times during the year when they celebrate life issues. Do they devote as much time and energy and effort and money to climate change? No, they don't. There's also another component to this, and that's the role of the media. Don Clemmer mentioned that you can create the most beautiful document only for someone to turn around and use it as like a political weapon. And that can happen internally between the bishops, but it's also been a cudgel that the media has eagerly picked up a time or two. And Father Reese agrees. I would say that both the media and the bishops are obsessed about abortion. And that's why it gets more attention than anything the bishops say about immigration or climate change or capital punishment or these other uh, life issues. So if the bishops say something against Biden and against abortion, that will make news. If the bishops say something about climate change, so what? You know, the news media doesn't care. So. Where does this leave us? We know the bishop's stance on abortion. We know President Biden's pro-choice position. And we know both are catnip for the press. But can the bishops actually deny Biden or any pro-choice politician communion? Under current canon law, it is the local bishop 
who decides who can go to communion and who cannot. And so, for example, here in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., where the president lives, the uh, Cardinal Archbishop, Wilton Gregory, has made very clear that President Biden can go to communion here in the Church of Washington. However, however, if he travels to San Francisco, I am quite sure that Archbishop Cardellione would tell him, no, you cannot go to communion in my diocese. This is really an American practice. We don't see it in other parts of the world. For example, John Paul II gave communion to the mayor of Rome, who was pro-choice, a pro-choice Catholic. He also gave communion to Tony Blair, who at the time was a pro-choice Episcopalian. He was not even a Catholic. This is an American Episcopal strategy. It's one that Rome does not support, but there are bishops in the United States who are still pushing for it. In fact, even if they got the Bishop's Conference in the United States to approve this, they would need a two-thirds vote, and then they would also need the approval of Rome. So if the bishops can't actually decide as a conference whether Biden can receive communion, why bother having this public debate? Right. Or to put it another way, if there's no winner or loser in this fight, does that mean everybody loses? Well, because the bishops' conference can hardly do anything unless it has a two-thirds vote, it forces the bishops to compromise or do nothing. And so the strategy recently has been to do nothing. There were bishops who wanted the document to say that you could not vote for pro-choice politicians and you had to vote for pro-life politicians. And there were other bishops who said, no, 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 we cannot do that. So it got to the point where it was clear that if the bishops tried to write a new document on faithful citizenship, it would be a bloodbath. And they might not get the two-thirds vote necessary to pass it. They certainly would not get a consensus vote as they had in the past. So the bishops ducked the issue. They just added a short little letter to the beginning of it and said, hey, take a look at the one we did four years ago or eight years ago. You know, And they just kept you know, saying, look at our old document. They found it impossible to write a new document because they were so divided. Consensus, like unity or synodality, it's a word that carries a lot of weight. In the Catholic Church, unity is, is not just another word. This is Don Clemmer again. And what you see in what was built by Cardinal Bernardine and the other early founders of the conference is this model meant to foster just that. You have committees upon committees that are a structure that's meant to foster authentic encounter, listening, dialogue, and the bishops not just squeaking by with 50% plus one. But if this past year of debates have shown us anything, it's that achieving true consensus isn't easy because the bishops are not a monolith. One of the bishops I spoke to talked about that it really, he really bristles when he hears, you bishops. He says, well, which bishops? He said, we are of one mind, but we don't have one brain. They have to encounter each other just as the church encounters the world. 
And that kind of listening, dialoguing, encounter, that's exactly what the Vatican's prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal Ladaria, told Archbishop Gomez in his response to him this spring. He said, don't go forward with drafting a document until you've talked to one another and to the people who are actually affected by this, the politicians, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi. In the meantime, we've heard from Pope Francis that he has never personally denied anyone communion, and he said that the bishops should be pastors, that they shouldn't be condemning people, and that they are even pastors for the excommunicated, for people who can't receive communion. And according to President Biden, in his meeting with the Pope recently, the Pope even told him to continue receiving communion. So the Pope's made where he stands on this pretty clear. In short, the Pope is moving on from this, and the question is if the U.S. bishops will follow. Okay, but that still leaves me with one more question. What about the rest of us? What about the Catholic faithful? So much of the spotlight has remained on political and church leaders when communion is really about all of us. And I know it's impossible to strip away the political context of this Eucharistic revival, we do still have a pretty strong indication that the bishops want to write something for the laity in their upcoming document on the Eucharist. But how will it land? I asked Father Reese that question. Well, most Catholics do not read encyclicals. Most Catholics do not read documents that come out of the bishops' conference or even from their local bishop. These letters are meant to influence the teachers in the church, priests, religious, lay people. However, if people ignore them, then you got a problem. I asked Don Clemmer that same question. So Don, I have to tell you that the first pastoral letters that I read were probably in my, my college theology classes. I did not necessarily grow up in my Catholic parish hearing about them. And so when I read about them today in Catholic media, I am often astonished by how much weight they actually do carry. But do bishops' letters, statements, words, do they reach the faithful? Oh, that's a great point. One of my cherished memories of my time at the conference was a particularly candid moment from the former bishop of Stockton, California, Bishop Stephen Blair, who's now deceased. But he put his finger on it and said, we have a perennial problem, which is we spend all of this time laboring over documents that then go on a shelf to collect dust. And when the document is published, some bishops think, oh, well, thank goodness that work is over when the work is only beginning. And the notion of reception, a teaching being received, is an actual term in Catholic theology that something be received. So it's a real issue. This episode is being released just a few days shy of the November 2021 Bishops' Conference, and we don't know exactly what will come of it. In fact, that's kind of the whole point. If this meeting is done in a spirit of synodality or of authentic and mutual listening with an aim towards reaching a real consensus, then the bishops themselves shouldn't know exactly what's coming out of it. But we do know that canon law prohibits the Conference of Bishops from telling a bishop to deny someone communion. And that President Biden said that Pope Francis told him that he should continue to receive communion. 
And we know that what started as the pandemic keeping people away from the sacraments and this crisis in catechesis, which morphed into a targeted critique of pro-choice politicians, might have along the way become a more genuine attempt at a Eucharistic revival. Yeah, a leaked copy of the document reveals that there's only oblique references to politicians, and mostly the document focuses on the theology of the Eucharist. Right, so then we get to the question, can a restatement of the Catholic theology bring us all back to a true understanding of the Eucharist? And most importantly, will that be received by people who feel distanced or separated or alienated from the church, people who are most hungry for God? Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by Maggie Van Dorn, with some help from me, Colleen Deli. Sound engineering by Frank Tucson. Production assistance from Ricardo Da Silva and Kira Hanlon. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. This episode made use of a lot of reporting from America staff members, including Michael Lachlan and Sam Sawyer. We'll link to those articles in the show notes. And for more in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage, visit americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. If you want to support our work here on Inside the Vatican, the best way to do that is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Maggie Van Dorn, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.